Hello and welcome to the second episode of the 10th and L podcast. This is a podcast coming to you from True North Church in Anchorage, Alaska. My name is Philip Coleman. I'm the lead pastor and one of the elders here at True North. And uh, I'm joined today by Tyler Wolf, who is our director of uh, music and communication. You'll hear from him in just a minute. Uh, so I wanted to give you guys a couple of updates regarding the podcast in general. This is all still very new to us, but we do have some new artwork incoming. Uh, my wife, Andrea, was able to put together a couple of graphics that we're a little bit more excited about than the sort of black and white thing we had going on before. So keep an eye out for that. That'll be coming to you soon. Uh, we are probably going to stick with the name, though we were very skeptical in episode one about uh, that being a good thing to do. People have been very positive, and we do like the idea that Tenth and L is specifically where the gospel and culture meet in our lives, because it's where we meet for church, right here downtown in Anchorage. So if you're listening to this and you don't know where we meet and you are local to us, that's an easy way to find us, is just to type in Tenth and L, and that's where we meet on Sunday mornings. And then a reminder to you guys, if you have questions, comments, ideas for discussion topics for the podcast, we are going to continue to try to put these out weekly. Uh, and so we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at info, I-N-F-O, at truenorthalaska.com. Hi, everybody. Tyler here, and I'd like to just give you a quick announcement. Uh, next week, if you're listening to this uh, the week of uh, May 23rd through the 30th, on May 30th, this Sunday, we will be meeting at Cuddy Family Park in Midtown at 11 a.m., so if you're going to come join us there, uh, please bring your own blanket or lawn chair. There is some limited seating uh, in the amphitheater, but I promise it'll be a little more comfortable if you have a folding chair. It's going to be a great day. Uh, two weeks from this coming Thursday, so Thursday, June the 10th at 6 p.m., we'll be meeting for our next prayer night and worship event. We do this about every six to eight weeks, and this event is going to be built around some individual prayer for local churches in Anchorage, and, and more broadly than that, just the Church of Jesus in the city of Anchorage. Um, we see statistically churches close their doors in our city every year, really every couple of months. Coming out of COVID, that's been worse than it's ever been, and we're going to spend some time on our knees, on our faces, a heart posture of asking God to meet us here and do what he's promised in his word, and that is to build his church. That's what we want him to do. So we hope you'll plan to join us 6 p.m. Thursday, June 10th. Uh, we will have child care provided for those of you who have kiddos at home. If you are a volunteer at True North Church, uh, we have set aside a day to just show some appreciation. Uh, we're calling it uh, unsurprisingly, Volunteer Appreciation Day. That's going to be on July 18th at 10 a.m., and what we're going to do is we're going to take everybody out to the Alaska Wildlife Conservation Center out near Girdwood. Uh, admission is going to be covered. Uh, transportation will not be, but I'm sure you can find some some carpooling if need be, and we want to see you there. This is going to be a great time. I heard that there's going to be food trucks there as well if you want to plan for that. There's also some uh, restaurants on the way that are all terrific and fabulous, so we just we want to see you there and spend some time just doing stuff together. That's right, and that event is for anybody who volunteers in any area of ministry in the life of True North Church as well as their family and your kids. We're happy to cover admission for everybody. We really want to make sure we have a chance to say thank you to you. So looking back to last week, it was our first episode, and we dealt with deconstruction and false teachers. We talked about what deconstruction is in just a little bit more detail. Tyler and I tried to give you guys our perspective on maybe some legitimate reasons why a person would want to deconstruct from the evangelical church in America. We talked about the biblical precedent for how to interact with false teachers. So we tried to differentiate between people who have been misled by culture and those who are actively trying to lead others away from Jesus. There's a difference both in how the Bible speaks to those situations and our expectation as believers on how we would interact with them. And then as a part of that, we touched briefly on what we called purity culture. We tried to give that a definition to be fair to that. 
Uh, and then we absolutely did pick on it, I think, in some ways that were very appropriate. Um, so that brings us up to speed today. Tyler, I think you're going to let us know what's on the docket for today's discussion. That's right. This week, we're going to be talking about evangelical idols and disenculturation, and we're going to get into what that actually means. So the first question we're going to answer today are, what are the things that evangelicals love uh, that aren't actually biblical, the things that you may have grown up around uh, that were kind of paired with the gospel, but maybe, and maybe even unknowing to you, uh, we're not actually part of the gospel. Then we're going to talk about how and why those things even become idols, and then we're going to finally talk about what disenculturation actually is, if there's a, a better way out of evangelical idolatry than deconstruction, which we talked about last week. So Philip, question one is for you. What are common idols within evangelical subculture? Uh, in other words, what about your evangelical experience is, quote, muscle, and what is maybe, quote, just the fat? That's helpful. I appreciate the question, Tyler. Um, that is the analogy that I think in terms of when I try to figure out uh, what's good for the church and what's not. Um, there are so many different people who are writing about this right now, and they're coming at it from different perspectives, and I think that they all kind of have their own analogy that they like to use. It helps me to think in terms of what is the muscle, what gets the work of the church done, what is necessary, and then what is fat, what's just sort of along for the ride, maybe it's fun, maybe we would argue it adds flavor, or it's possibly like fat in our bodies can be a byproduct of eating things that we ought not to, ingesting as a church stuff that isn't necessarily good and right. And so um, I have a handful of categories here, and I'll invite you, my friend, to just jump in wherever you uh, feel that you have something to say as well. Um, I think that probably the thing that comes to my mind first and most frequently, and we'll start on the lighter end of the spectrum here, um, is Christian knockoffs, the what we used to call sort of the great value brand of <laughs> that's right. whatever's going Pro on. Brand. That's right. Whatever's going on in culture at a given time. So this has been music for a long time. Um, I'll just give you an example here. My dad was a huge Kiss fan back whenever they were big. I don't even know. I guess we could say the 70s, maybe the early 80s. And my dad uh, came to meet the Lord in high school and he and some of his friends from high school ended up going to um, a college in Texas called Howard Payne together. They were roommates. They hung out together a lot. And so knowing their mutual shared church background, there were some moments for him. I don't know that he ever actually burned records, but he definitely threw away some music when he came to know the Lord. He wasn't trying to glorify and exalt those things. He and one of his best friends, a guy named Mark Dance, they would regularly pray together that the uh, band members of KISS would be saved, that God would save their soul Good so they them. would finally have some music to listen to. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not really been the way it works typically. We tend to just sort of adopt these B-list musicians. Uh, I would say that some kinds of Christian movies fall into this category. You know, there's certainly some movies that have uh, a theme that does glorify God, that does tell a genuine story. But unfortunately, in my experience, uh, many quote-unquote Christian movies don't really deal with real suffering. They don't really add to uh, the, cultural's, the culture's perspective on how a Christian can have a rich and abiding love for Jesus and other people. They just sort of further the insulated view that the culture has about Christianity, That's that, right. that we're— that we're just sort of homeschool in a negative way to the nth degree. And that's not fair, I don't think. Um, but I do think that sometimes some of the loudest voices are those that are involved in Christian knockoffs. I mean, you, you're you going to be able to think of more than one movie that stars Kirk Cameron. Uh, and I love that Kirk is a believer. I love that I'm not trying to call him out personally. I think, you know, the man's got his trade and he's got to make money and feed his family. But sometimes we write scripts for guys like that that aren't maybe as intellectually or experientially honest as they could be. And I think that further 
reinforces our culture's perspective that we're just sort of out of touch with the world, which is a lot of what's going on in evangelical subculture. Um, in my own life growing up, I didn't see this quite so much at my own church, but um, the church I was a part of in East Texas was connected to a few other churches, and our youth groups would overlap sometimes for different events. And uh, I think they called it the Longview Youth Ministers Network, or Lyman, which is just some trivia for you. I'm sure that doesn't mean anything to you guys. Um, but they would do these events, and when the other smaller church youth pastors would plan the events and put them on, man, the stuff that they would do to try to draw teenagers maybe would have worked in the 80s, you know? I mean, I was in high school. I went into high school in 2005 and then graduated 2009. And so those four years... I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we had we did the Christian magician thing. Uh, we used to go on these um, mission trips sometimes, and we would bring in a Christian skateboarding group. That's incredible. And they were the coolest. They were the coolest and most relevant, and those dudes were down to earth. They loved Jesus. They knew the gospel, and they wanted to share him. But a lot of times, that they'd never quite make it all the way out. There'd be the strong man on stage. The guy would rip the phone book in half or inflate the water bottle and blow it up with his lungs or whatever. And then somebody would get on stage, another goofy youth guy in jeans that didn't fit and a polo shirt and sandals, and he would say, well, you know, that guy was able to blow up that thing, and that's the same way that Jesus really conquers our sin. And I think the kids just were in the audience were like, I don't know that I have a problem with water bottles. I don't know that my hot water bottle is the issue in my life. It just was so abstract, we couldn't always wrap our minds around it. But I told you I'd start on the easy end. I want to get a little more serious here. Political conservatism, to me, is a thing that we have to be very careful about. I want to give full disclosure up front. Um, I would argue that the traditional policies of political conservatism in the last 75 years have typically more closely aligned themselves with values that it seems that the Bible promotes than the alternative has. And we live in a bipartisan place where there's really only two options in any given election. I have a lot of problem with that by itself, but it's true. We can't get out from underneath that. What I think is unfortunate is we've begun to assume, and this is more the last 25 years, that any position that's presented as politically conservative is necessarily in sync yes. with our faith. And that's inappropriate. Um, I think that where we've stopped being thinking, careful, praying people when it comes really policy to policy to policy, we again have 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 played into this idea that we have a pseudo-Christian um, political subculture that tends to dominate, that goes over and above the authority that the Bible has in our lives. And I would be willing to believe, I don't know that this is true necessarily, but I would be willing to believe if somebody told me that most people who claim Christ in these United States spend more hours a week listening to uh, aggressive news programming on either the right or the left than they do in God's Word. And I think that that's going to disciple us. We just can't be surprised when those narratives begin to be moving. We get attached to them. And I think that's what we're talking about when we talk about evangelical idols, is not just maybe cheesy or corny things that Christians have done, but things that begin to demand and then ultimately receive our worship. We're not just saying that these aren't always the best thing. I can make a clear argument from people in my own life who I know who have decided that to be politically conservative is the equivalent of being faithful to God. That's right. And I think that there may be times where that is true occasionally, but when that becomes our outlook, we adopt that as a policy, we stop thinking through those things, we stop praying through those things, then it is an idol. Then it's really functioning as God, because God is supposed to be the only voice in our life that we don't challenge automatically. And if we've allowed certain political pundits or their perspectives to become voices that we don't challenge, then in some way they've taken on uh, the role of God. This past Sunday, I defined a God as someone who has our faith and our allegiance. And 
I believe that many people who claimed Christ at one point functionally now believe that their destiny, even their spiritual destiny, is directly connected to the future of this country politically. And I believe that that is a tool of our enemy. I think that is the devil giving us something that is close enough to the truth that it's convincing, but far enough off that eventually it will become incredibly destructive in our lives. I wanted to throw this back at you, Tyler. You've been a part of True North now for a decade, a little longer than me, and you've seen the way that we've interacted with programming, I think, has been kind of unique being here in Anchorage. We know from, from or I do at least from living here long enough, that many people leave the city in the summer, and that's kind of hard for mission teams to grasp who want to come up. They assume that summer's the time to reach people, but really the Anchorageites are gone. You're going to see right. a lot more people yeah. from out of state downtown in the summer than from in the state. So talk to me a little bit about programming, specifically things that um, there have been some people who've asked before, why doesn't True North do a vacation Bible school every summer? Give me your perspective, and then I'll tack on maybe my more official elder voice in, in okay. is there a need for that? And, and if not, what have we chosen to do instead? But go ahead. Sure. I think uh, if, I know not many of us are left, but for the few people that have been around uh, True North since close to the beginning, uh, one of the major pushes that we had in the very, be- very beginning was we had an article published in the Anchorage Daily News that was just why another church in Anchorage. And uh I think it was trying to be a little trendy and just trying to seem like, you know, this we're not your granddaddy's church. Uh, but at the same time, it kind of set a framework for, we know that you have seen the church operate this way, but we want to show you that maybe all of that is a little extraneous, and we want to just get back to, uh, it's all about Jesus. That's where that came from for us. That's where it all kind of started for us, the, that language that we use, it's all about Jesus. Um, I think that set a precedent for non uh, program-driven church, non-program-driven ministry. And it's kind of been our DNA since day one. Um, you know, we recognize the merit of VBS. We've we've done a couple, but it's not been part of our DNA. It's not been something that that uh, um, that our ministry has risen and fallen. It's not, you know, lived or died on stuff like that. We don't have a rigid homeless ministry. Um, we don't have a, a rigid... Uh, I guess we do have a like a gathering of men for Bible study, but we used to do men's breakfast, and we used to have a rigid ministry where we don't really have that anymore. Uh, but I think the healthy reason that we do that is because we've put in the the prerogative on the individual church member, the the covenant member that says, "I have a heart for this, and I want to do this. I want to be a part of prison ministry, and I want you to come along with me. Um, I want to uh, minister to the women of True North," and I think. Uh, the church then backing that, I think, is a lot uh, healthier, in my opinion, than prescribing, this is what we do, the church does this, and we need 15 volunteers or else it's not going to work, and then God's not going to uh, bless the ministry of True North. I agree with you totally, and I think that um, when it comes to something like Vacation Bible School, we have to be so careful. I can tell you from my own experience in Kentucky, I was responsible to coordinate the Vacation Bible School efforts at the church I worked at there, and uh, many people dreaded Vacation Bible School, and they would actively avoid anybody that they thought was going to try to recruit them into leadership. Um, that, to me, I don't know of a better litmus test for idolatry in your life than when you are afraid of being a part of a thing that you feel like you have to do anyway. Like, when you don't like it, it's not exciting. Like, at some point, Christians have to look around them and go, if God is truly about my joy, and this thing that we've done for 100 years in a row has never brought me joy— then either my heart needs an adjustment, very possible, or, and probably more likely if you're not alone in that sentiment, something programmatically, something subculture level needs to shift here. Because we made a few small tweaks and adjustments. I'm not saying that I fixed that problem for everybody or even anybody. 
But it was something about the rigidity of using the same program every summer, all the music, the decorating that had to happen. Some of that's cool for kids. But again, we have to be careful that what we're showing children as valuable matches up with what we say. And sometimes we say it's all about Jesus, but then it maybe kind of looks like it's all about bringing your friends and, right. and do, sliming the music minister if the boys raise more money for missions. And again, those can be fun things. I'm not trying to say we can't ever do that stuff, but we have to be very careful. In fact, maybe we should just slime our music director for we, fun. We've done pie. We did pie, and it got in my Gosh. beard, and it was terrible, and I wore my nicest sweater that day because I mm. forgot it was happening. Mm-hmm. Sorry we can't have nice things. Um, I need to move us along. We have a couple other things listed here, and Church, if you want to hear more about this and hear us maybe even make some recommendations that we discuss some evangelical idols, we certainly don't have to finish this conversation today. Anytime God can expose our idols, I think we grow and get better. But for the sake of time today, we're trying to land the plane in about 40 minutes this afternoon. Um, Tyler, I want to move us on to question two. So The second thing we said we would dig into is how and why do these things become evangelical idols? And what I mean by that is how do things that are good or maybe just acceptable, right? Maybe they're just a preferential thing that you like or you did in another church. How do they become ingrained into the life of our church such that we can't imagine church without them? We can't believe that we could survive losing them. Another Another way to say this would be how does a local church develop its own Gold, golden calves, to use the imagery from the book of Exodus. So what are your thoughts there? Sure, I think it's important for us to uh, kind of differentiate between this, uh, between more blatant idolatry and the more subversive idolatry. So I, I would categorize uh, subversive idolatry, the things we're talking about, how do good, good and acceptable things become idols. I would kind of classify those things. Uh, they don't seem super bad in the beginning, and they kind of just get uh, injected in, into our DNA maybe over time. Um, I think those things come about from a uh, relatively good, positive experience. You know, that serotonin goes off in your brain. Uh, things like church growth or baptism. Um, I've written down community, uh, purity, even music. Those are all kind of good things, and all of those things become idols. They start uh, with the association of those things being good and right, and I think negative things start that way, too. Um, but I think negative idolatry is probably a little easier to spot. I think, uh, hopefully not within our own church, but um, you see things like uh, church members deifying or glorifying preachers and ministers, uh, worshiping health and wealth over the gospel, uh, worshiping money. What do you think, Philip? Yeah, so maybe I can I can clarify what you mean in those two categories, because I hear what you're saying. I think you're right. I think when we say blatant idolatry, we're talking about things that probably people bring into the church that are already idols. Is that fair? These are yeah, sort of like, sure. I already loved money before I got to this church. I already thought my body was the most important thing in the world. Yeah, the culture already does all of those things. Yeah, and we, all, we have a natural proclivity toward deifying anybody who's good at their job, especially when it comes to communication. We've never yeah. had more channels of communication that common people can have access to, podcasts like this one, YouTube channels, TED Talks. Uh, I mean, almost any organization now has a full-time employee whose only job it is is to explain what's ca- going to happen next. So we kind of know what to do with a pastor that we think is a gifted communicator, and, and maybe we think we know that's mm-hmm. not necessarily good. But those more um, subversive idols, I would say, uh, whereas the blatant idols are things that we can work uh, against and know about up front, the subversive idols, to me, become idols when there aren't healthy biblical checks and balances Great. in play. yeah, absolutely. So these are things that, you're right, they do start out good, growth, baptism, community, purity, music. Those are all excellent and good and right things that have to be a part of a healthy church. But we have to have leadership in place, structures, checks and balances, moments where we look each other in the, in the eye and say, hey, we've done this for a long time. 
Is it working? Should we keep doing it? Do we know what metrics would even be fair to decide what's a success or not? So I agree with you. I think I just want to make sure that we make that distinction. Blatant idolatry, obviously up front, not good. Don't bring it in. Subversive idolatry is maybe when a, a thing like a cancer outgrows the role that it's supposed to yeah. play in our lives. Yeah, I think any of those things can become an, an idol uh, in basis terms when we place their importance above the gospel itself. Uh, we talked a little bit about a litmus test. I, I, I have a litmus test for you. Um, if you. If you're not sure what has the potential to become an idol in your life, um, take a moment to just reflect. What excites you the most when you think about when you're, or when you're getting ready to go to be with the church? Uh, what are the things? Are you excited to hear the music on a Sunday? Uh, are you excited to just hear really, really positive speaking? Are you excited to encounter Christ Jesus? And I think that's a really important thing to just take a moment to reflect on. Um, maybe the the thing that's going to, I hope, change some minds today is that these things become idols, not because we necessarily view those things too highly and too good. It's that we don't view Christ high enough. Hmm. Um, I have some scripture for us here, and I just want to take a moment to read uh, that we're going to be in the book of Colossians. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, says this, uh, speaking of, of Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created th- through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent before everything. For in Jesus all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, or making peace by the blood of his cross." Jesus is a big deal, and he should feel like that always. I think we should not come out of any interaction thinking any less than he is before all things. He is the firstborn of all creation. I think just spending some time in Scripture to kind of read who Jesus is is going to be really important for you to to fight against the idols in your own life. Uh, Jesus uh, Jesus addresses this concept uh, a little earlier in the Bible, in the Gospel of John. Um, I wanted to read that as well. John 5, just a quick reading, verses 39 through 40, says this. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they who bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is nothing new. Jesus has been dealing, Jesus deals with this in a huge portion of all of his interactions with, uh, with Pharisees and Sadducees uh, in, in the Bible. This is not something that he is caught off guard by. I think he even suggests here that the word itself can become an idol. Yeah, so I think what's interesting to me and what's what's coming out, not having heard these scriptures, you know, before you're reading them right now, it's becoming plain to me that Jesus saw this coming, that the Bible has categories for people who want to elevate a thing above Jesus. We, yes, we made the absolutely. joke very early on today about this sort of great value brand of cultural stuff. Well, in a weird way, anything that we worship in place of Jesus is truly a, a knockoff of him. What we're doing is putting yes. an element of our own longing, our own soul, our deepest cravings, the, the place where we derive meaning. We're putting that all on a thing, the creation instead of the creator. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 seems to feel that this is the source of most of the problems anywhere in the world. 
And I think it's neat to hear Jesus take ownership of that himself, to claim you've lived this way, you've thought this way, you're wrong. We shouldn't be surprised that the modern church is having to undergo this sort of, uh, I would say, renovation at an organization level, um, at least in part because that's just the way people are, and Jesus has a remedy for that. So moving now into kind of our third category, I want to make sure we give ourselves enough time to touch on disenculturation. We want to try to clarify for you, listener, what disenculturation is, probably a new term for you, so I'll say it more slowly in a minute when I explain it. And then the, the reason it matters, here's the application of this whole thing. If we can see in these first two categories of questions that there are legitimate concerns that a person would have for the evangelical church, stuff that we love that we shouldn't, that's been elevated in a way that it ought not be, we've now heard from Christ himself that that isn't going to work, what do we do? Is deconstruction the right answer, I think, is what we're trying to get at. And what Tyler and I are going to argue for today in our remaining 15 minutes or so is disenculturation is a better way and is honestly going to get us more closely to our objective than deconstruction would. So this term, disenculturation, is pretty new to Tyler and I both. Um, We are using that term, having adopted it from a guy named Hunter Beaumont, who is a pastor in Denver, Colorado. Hunter wrote a very helpful article on a website called The Gospel Coalition that Tyler and I both read pretty frequently. Um, He also wrote a chapter in a collection of essays that the Gospel Coalition published under the title, Before You Lose Your Faith, Deconstruction, Deconstructing Doubt in the Church. Um, this is something that came out uh, this year in the last couple of months from the time that we're recording this podcast. It features uh, lots of different authors writing their perspective on how uh, deconstruction works, why it's happening now, the church's perspective. Um, Hunter wrote chapter four of that book, and it's really a, an expansion upon the article that he wrote on the Gospel Coalition website. So you could access those uh, pretty easily, check those out for yourself, and read up on what he said. His chapter is called Before You Lose Your Faith, uh, or excuse me, it's, I think it's actually called Disenculturation in the book, Before You Lose Your Faith. Huge help to us, introduced us the idea to this. So here is Hunter's definition. He describes disenculturation as the process used by missionaries to differentiate the gospel from culture. In his writing, Hunter uses the terms kernel and husk to describe the gospel. He says that's the kernel, and he says the husk is the culture in which the gospel is embedded. He would argue that it's impossible in any real context anywhere in the world to have the gospel appear free of some kind of culture. So it's not that we're trying to remove culture, we're not at war with culture, that would be a temptation to just demonize the world even further and think that our job is to keep the gospel from ever making contact with something that we might think is overly cultural. His argument is the objective of a missionary, the reason why this is a tool of missionaries, is to try to figure out what the culture is that the missionary is trying to minister to and never change the kernel, but wrap it in the appropriate husk. You've heard us in this podcast use the words muscle and fat. Same idea. Um, I think that probably anybody who's been a part of a local church for more than a few months has seen this happen. Those of you that are members at True North, I would be willing to bet there's at least one thing about how we do stuff, how we talk, how long the service is, what time it is. I don't know. There's probably an element to how we do church that's not your very favorite thing. I don't think anybody likes everything about their local church. And I would argue if you do, if you're really just head over heels for your local church, you either haven't been there long enough or you're the pastor. Those are probably the only two kinds of people who love everything their church does. And I would say that if you have elders, then not even the pastor loves everything the church does because it's a plurality. That's how it's supposed to work. So, so Hunter recommends four steps. He says that this is a linear process if we want to disenculturate the gospel so we can see it okay. separately from culture. Um, We're just going to talk through these. So first, he says, we need to learn to see culture. 
This is probably a new category for many of us. Culture to you may feel like the study of some sociologist at some PhD level program at a Harvard or a Yale. Um, You're probably familiar with some news articles that break that are primarily culturally oriented, but I would be willing to bet that most of that's coming to you wrapped in a package of fear. Most of the time, we only hear we only hear about culture when we think that it's the next big tidal wave that's going to break on the shore of our lives and mess things up. And I think that's unfair. Beaumont, Hunter Beaumont, uh, defines culture this way. He says that it's the languages and the stories that explain our world. It's all of our cultural touchstones. It's every, every the movies we grew up with, the music that we know. Uh, your ability to be with people your age and just hum a tune, and everybody there knows the the com- commercial from the '90s that that's from. That's what we mean when we say culture. Um, if I say things like Veggie Tales and everybody on a Sunday laughs, that tells me we have that in common. I don't have to explain to you right. a computer animated anthropomorphic set of vegetables that try to teach principles to children, which is as weird as it sounds like it is. But we loved it. I loved it as a kid. Um, Hunter goes on to say that cultures foster habits that comprise, from our perspective, the good life. So culture gives us our definition of the good life, and the good life is our objective. It's all anybody wants. Every human being wants their life to be better tomorrow than it is today. Now, as a result, once we establish the good life, then culture hands us our defense mechanisms, and those defense mechanisms are meant to deflect the questions of people from outside of that culture. You have experienced this, my friend. You, You know what this feels like for a person to pick on a thing that you love, and you have a justification for it. Um, a subculture that I participate in is board games. It's my favorite hobby. People, I know, I can see it in their eyes when I say that to them. They think, so you just play with toys. That's what you're saying? So I have this very robust rebuttal that I give to people about how board games are not toys and how it's a helpful outlet for my aggression and none of it is valuable to my family. But at the end of the day, yeah, it's a toy. It's painted cardboard and plastic that looks like monsters and has dice, and with it's just a game. It is a toy, but I like it, and so I, I find a way to defend it. We do that with our Christianity, sometimes in a way that's healthy, but sometimes we have those defense mechanisms around things that are really subculture issues. And so once that happens, we begin to elevate celebrities within our culture. Uh, we find people that we think are achieving the good life, and we begin following them. Uh, and they, those people exemplify our ideals many times. And then having done all of that, here's the big twist of culture. Culture pretends it doesn't exist. It denies its own existence, and it says to you, well, this is just the way things are. And this is the most dangerous thing, I think, that could happen to our children and our students in a church, is they begin to question why things are the way they are, and instead of going to God's word and doing the hard work of defending what is biblical and then allowing them to critique maybe our favorite things, but it's just preference, right? We have to be okay with a younger generation not liking our style of music, not liking the way we dress, not liking whether we stand or sit, what the order of service is, things that are not coming directly from the Bible. We have to let them question those things instead of just saying, well, it's just the way it is here. Because we're going to do one of two things. We're either going to blind them just in the same way that we're blind and rob them the opportunity of learning and growing and being better and different from us, or we're going to drive them out because they're going to know no, it's not just the way things are. There's a lot of other ways to do things. And if you won't speak to me about this, I'll find somebody who does. And so culture then, though it's always present, uh, it doesn't always play a role in every part of our lives. I would argue it does always play a role in our experience of faith. The gospel always comes to us by way of a culture. And when we can begin to identify what culture is and is not, then we can wind up with just the gospel left over. So how do we do that? What's practical? I would say a very helpful thing for you to do, and some of you, because of your political affiliation, won't like this recommendation. I'm not saying you need to believe everything you read, but it would be helpful to you to subscribe to the the New York Times and read the articles and hear the narrative of culture. 
because some of the most powerful people in the world are drinking deeply of that stuff and it's impacting how they make decisions. So shouldn't you be aware of that? Uh, the Atlantic, the oldest newspaper in the United States, is a great place to land. They have an online presence. You can also order a physical copy. They do a really good job of digging into and analyzing what's going on in culture, and they rarely defend any of those things. And I'll be straight with you, they even go after evangelical subculture in ways that I think are very helpful. Even if I disagree with them, it helps to know the way that we've been seen. There's a technology website and newspaper that I follow called The Verge. Uh, one of the hardest things I could recommend that you do is make time to watch the news station of your political rival. So if you're a Republican, you need to watch a little CNN every week. And if you're a Democrat, you probably need to tune into Fox News once in a while. And and maybe you're not either of those things. That would be better, I think, than you being stuck in a party. But if you feel that you're at an extreme, be aware of what's going on on the other side. Don't just let your own extreme echo chambers interpret culture for you. Interpret it yourself. That's right. I think the dangers of echo chambers is that we, we really never introduce... Uh, uh, opposite ways of thinking to our, thinking to ourselves. Um, I, I think it's really important for us to to go after these things, not as I don't know, as spies, covert Christians, whatever you want to think of it about it as. But we need to understand that the people we come into contact with, they already have presuppositions about you, uh, about your faith, about your politics, whether or not you've even communicated any of that to them. Uh, if they know that you are a Christian. They already have thoughts about you based on those talking heads that we've talked about, based on uh, the, the political higher-ups that they subscribe to. They all will have things that they pre-believe about you without you being there to defend yourself. So it's important to know what the world thinks about Christianity, I think. That's right. And, and that whole idea, being able to see culture, that's the most challenging of all of this. That will be the biggest shift if you're not a person who's already aware of this. The, the next three really fall in line pretty quickly. The second is having identified what is culture and what is truly gospel, what are Jesus' things and what are not, we wrestle with the right issues. So a helpful question to me when I'm upset about something that happens in a church somewhere is to ask myself, am I upset at the doctrine of this thing or am I just upset at the tone or the method or the word choice? Um, Tim Keller uh, yesterday, or no, I think it was on Sunday, he tweeted this. I thought this was helpful. He said, think of fanatical people. They are overbearing, they are insensitive, and they are harsh. Why? It's not because they are too Christian, but because they are not Christian enough. They are fanatically zealous, but they are not fanatically humble, fanatically sensitive, fanatically empathetic, fanatically forgiving as Christ was. That is helpful to me to go, okay, am I being fanatically zealous about things that are secondary issues or because I am so serious about embodying Jesus, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his patience, his forgiveness, am I instead allowing secondary or even tertiary issues to just be what they are and me try to get along and value unity over having the church be 100% exactly how I think it should be? Part three of disenculturation is finding a church that engages the gospel and engages the culture, but is able to do that while they're separate things. And I'll tell you, as the primary communicator at True North, at least the primary public communicator, what I say is certainly a product of our elder team and what we believe and how we've um, worked through things behind the scenes. We want to be a place that can talk about the gospel and can also comment on culture, idols of culture, trends in society, things that want desperately to draw your attention away from Jesus. You'll hear me speak that way. Um, I don't, on a Sunday morning, ever want to overly philosophize. What I want to do 
is help you see what is what in truth to separate out culture and gospel. And then I want to talk about how it affects us. And I think you'll begin to learn that uh, by immersion a little bit. And then God willing, at a church like True North, where we do discussion questions that typically uh, revolve around what happens on a Sunday, your time in life group is also going to be reflective of what we're discussing on a Sunday. And your life group is going to get to speak into what is gospel, what is culture, etc. And then finally, part four, Hunter says, is having done those steps, you should expect to see the gospel in a new way, with a fresh perspective. And this is where the muscle versus fat analogy really helps me, because if what I've been used to has been even 50-50 muscle and fat, as I move away from that fatty experience, it's just different to have more meat on the plate. It's harder sometimes. It is challenging to me that the Bible might not defend all of the cultural things I care about. It might only defend the gospel. I might read the Apostle Paul say that he went out of his way to not be wise in the eyes of the culture, but to instead only present what he felt was true. And so if you think about the analogy in a literal sense, when we eat something, imagine biting into a, a steak. If somebody, if you order on the menu a steak and they just bring you a cut of charred fat, you're not going to eat at that restaurant very long before you go, no, they don't know what meat is here. i got to go somewhere else. And so I think it's possible that that's a reason that we're seeing people step away from churches is because they've continued to be served fat and they've been told over and over again, no, this is meat, no, this is meat, no, this is meat. And they're going, no, I know what meat is. Meat is tougher than this. Meat is sustenance for me. Meat helps my body and my life and my mind. This is fat. This is gross. It's chewy. It's nasty. All of you guys might like it. Maybe it adds flavor and you like how it tastes to you, but it doesn't have the nutritional sustenance that I need in order to follow Jesus. So the place I wanted to land in this discussion about disenculturation is this isn't just a cultural response to where we are as a society. This isn't a knee-jerk reaction. This isn't really a new idea at all. Um, I would argue that it begins in Acts chapter 10. I want to be brief here because we're coming up on our time, uh, but beginning in Acts chapter chapter 10, God speaks to two men. He speaks to Cornelius, who is a Gentile, a non-Hebrew man, and Peter, who was obviously one of the disciples of Jesus and is now an apostle at this point. And God prepares both of them for their worlds to collide in a way that neither of them expected. In Acts chapter 11, Peter is called before the Christian believers in Jerusalem, all of whom at that point are Hebrews. They're all ethnically Jewish. They've been religiously Jewish before this. And in Acts chapter 11, the Bible reads this way, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, who are the people who believed you got to have circumcision if you're going to be a Christian, they criticized him and they said, quote, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Well, Peter knows he did that. In Acts chapter 10, he tells Cornelius, I know you guys don't expect me to be here. I didn't expect to be here either, but it seems like God's doing something big. Here's Peter's defense of his decision to go and be with Gentiles and to baptize them and to affirm their faith. In verse 17 of Acts 11, he says, If then God gave them, the Gentiles, the same gift to them that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord, then who was I that I could stand in God's way? And then verse 18 says, When the circumcision party, when those wrong-headed brothers heard these things, they fell silent. And then they glorified God and they said, quote, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is disenculturation. This is a removal of a thing that the circumcision party would have argued tooth and nail was 100% necessary for conversion. And Peter has to ask a hard question. He has to say, but what is the actual mode of salvation here? 
What do we believe saves us? Is it really circumcision? And the people say no. What's funny is <laughs> a non-Hebrew church is birthed in Antioch later on in Acts 11, and then four chapters later, there's another meeting, and this one is more formal. It's what's known as the Jerusalem Council. It's really the first doctrinal gathering of the early church in which the apostles and the elders and some of the local church leaders get all together. They have what is very likely a multi-day discussion and conference, and I just want to read some more of a lengthy passage here. But I want to read to you what happens to set that up. Verse 1 of Acts 15. Some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, saying, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now I'm thinking, didn't we already handle this? And I think so are some of the other apostles, but it's happening. Verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had no small disagreement with those brothers and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to seek guidance on this question. So being sent on their way by the church in Antioch, a Gentile church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. So, so funny. They're on their way to have this meeting about whether or not this is legitimate. They obviously think it is. They're telling everybody they can meet. This is awesome. This is going great. Maybe you and I feel like that's sort of like uh, preemptively seeding this discussion they're going to happen. But to them, they've seen God's spirit move. And it brought great joy to all the brothers. I love that. In the regions of Phoenicia and Samaria, which are not full-blooded Hebrew areas of the world, they love the idea that grace is for everybody. It's the most joyful, reassuring, amazing thing to them. If they had joy, I would assume some of them were saved just in hearing the testimony that other people could be saved who weren't Jewish. Now, when they came to Jerusalem, verse 4, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles, and they declared everything that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. In verses 10 and 11, Peter speaks again. He says, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers, the Jewish forefathers, nor even we ourselves have been able to bear? But here's what we believe, and this is the most important verse in these chapters. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So that yes, there is a biblical precedent for disenculturation. This has been necessary, and I would argue even painful for every generation of believers since the very first generation of believers. And so whether we move to a new culture or we simply watch our culture transform around us, it is good for us to disenculturate individually and allow our presentation of God's truth to be free from the fat of culture, whether we feel that it's outside culture or within the church culture. Why? So that we can get to the muscle so that people who don't have the muscle can get to the muscle, so that people who don't know God's truth can be free to access God's truth. Um, so I would say deconstruction that results in reconstruction is probably really disenculturation. We alluded to that last week, but people who come back from the edge of turning their back on God permanently, probably all they did is get rid of those evangelical idols and find a more pure and more encouraging and more honest version of faith. So our encouragement to you, listener, is to self-examine. What things, ask yourself, what things have you promoted? What things have you fought for? What things have you fought against online, in the lives of your children, in the lives of your parents, in the life of your local church? What hills have you died on that may not actually be Bible things, Jesus things, primary things? I would just encourage you, have, have receive peace, have joy in what the apostles said, that it takes grace and faith and nothing else. That is the most assuring. It's scary because we can't control it, but it is the most assuring and helpful thing, and my encouragement would be that we cut the fat. So in landing the plane today, um, next week, we're going to have a, a discussion. It'll be just me on the podcast this time. I've received some general questions and answers across the last two and a half years, and so I'm going to take some time to just talk a little bit about myself, my background in ministry, my vision for the future of the church, 
Um, obviously, that comes to you uh, camped among the other elders, so I, I'm in no way trying to break off or do anything inappropriate based on the polity of our church. I'm a willingly submissive lead pastor and co-elder to some of the best men in the world. Uh, but I've compiled some questions, and I want to let you know, if you're interested, you can actually submit a question to me. Uh, if you'd like to email info, info at truenorthalaska.com, you can use the subject line podcast questions, and then just let me know. If you'd like to know my perspective on a theological issue, my view on something that's going on in culture right now, whether it be within or outside of evangelicalism, things about my personal life, my education, my background, my church experience, whatever, I would be happy to go to that level. I want to be honest with you guys. And I'll just sign off by saying that we love you. As always, church, we are here for you, and we hope that this has been an encouragement. We'll see you soon.